Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. After a summer of discussions about medication safety, medication errors, the role of AI in prescribing decision support, precision medicine and drug development, we're moving to exploring healthcare systems again. Today, we'll dive into Canada, more specifically Quebec. You will hear from two speakers, Dr. Lawrence Rosenberg, President and CEO of the Integrated Health and Social Services University Network for West Central Montreal, and Danina Kapetanovic, the head of OROT, a connected health innovation hub inside the hospital network. The network serves approximately 345,000 people who are served by more than 30 member facilities. First, you'll hear a discussion with Dr. Rosenberg, who talked a little bit about the structure of the healthcare system in Canada. And then the Nina explained a little bit more about how the innovation hub OROT works and how the network is encouraging innovation. Enjoy the show and if you like what you hear, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. Coming up next in the upcoming weeks is an episode about digital health and healthcare digitalization in Taiwan and recordings of panel discussions about Catalonia, Germany, Finland and Israel that took place during the week of e-health, which was an event organized during the Slovenian presidency to the Council of EU at the end of August. Now to Canada. Dr. Rosenberg, let's start with a description of the Canadian healthcare. There's a joke, or at least it was, that Canada is like the U.S., but with good healthcare. Compared to the U.S., Canada does have a universal healthcare system. However, if we look at the comparisons among the OECD countries, it ranks as the most expensive universal healthcare system. In terms of availability and access to resources, Canada is generally below that of the average of the OECD countries, but its performance for the use of uh, resources and quality and clinical performance is mixed. So... For the beginning, from your perspective, how would you describe access to healthcare costs and the general state of healthcare in the country? Thank you very much for asking me to participate in this interview. And that is a a very critical and fundamental question. First, let me say that the Canadian healthcare system is completely unlike the American healthcare system. Our healthcare system here in Canada has absolutely no similarity to what goes on in the United States. It's actually a lot closer to to the healthcare system, for example, in North Korea than it would be to any other country in the world. And I say that because it's basically a, a publicly funded public sector healthcare system, almost co- 
entirely, which is not the healthcare systems uh, throughout much of Europe or the rest of the world, where most of the healthcare systems are hybrid systems, combination of public-private. So Canada is somewhat unique in that respect. Because of that, and because the government is the primary, if not sole payer of all medical and social services, it imposes on the system very significant constraints with respect to how much money can be spent in the health sector. And because of that, as a consequence, access to the system, generally speaking, is based on wait lists for common situations. However, I would add that anybody who's got an urgent situation or an urgent situation can get almost immediate access into the system without having to wait. So I, I think that's the trade-off. I think the quality of care in Canada, generally speaking, is quite, I think it's higher here than in most places when it looks at uh, outcomes on a disease by disease basis. I think access into the uh, urgent care network of the system is excellent. I think where we have our issues are in areas related to elective care and the wait times required to see a physician if you have an elective non-urgent situation. Yeah, that's quite a common problem in the universal systems. That's basically the same challenge that we have here. For some cases, the waiting lines are extremely long. But to go back to Canada, one thing that I find interesting is that while the system is universal, people actually need to have extra insurance that covers medication costs. Yes and no. Canada is made up of a number of provinces. It isn't just one country. It's really 10 small countries. And uh, healthcare in Canada is a provincial matter. It's not a federal matter. So each province has its own healthcare system. They're not identical. And each province has its own pharmacare or drug coverage program. In Quebec, for example, which is where I am, the provincial government uh, will pay the costs of medication up to a certain amount uh, every year for individuals. So that's a, a cost that's split between the government and the individual. So you don't need to have private insurance to cover the entire cost of your pharmaceutical cost. You opened up exactly what I was about to ask in the next question, and that is the differences in different provinces in Canada. There's 13 political divisions, 10 provinces, and three territories. And I always wonder, when you've got a country that's this size, how do different parts differ in terms of access to health care, quality of care? It, it does vary. I don't think it varies to any significant degree. But the population in each province is different. The organization of care to a certain extent is different. For example, in Quebec, our healthcare service also includes social services. So it's all under one ministry, whereas in many other places in Canada, it's split between two and three ministries within a province. So that has a very significant impact on the provision of care. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the kind of one of the big challenges that the system has, apart from the waiting times that we already mentioned? I think there are a number of challenges. One is public health care system, which is almost entirely public, I don't think is, in, is sustainable much longer because the government can't afford to put all its tax revenue into supporting one 
one ministry. It just isn't uh, viable, feasible going forward. Uh, mm -hmm. Second major challenge, which is huge, and it's a global challenge, is the lack of professional manpower. Globally at this time, there's probably 18 million jobs in healthcare that are unable to be filled around the world. And certainly experiencing that here in Canada as well. It's a very serious problem. And it's a problem that cannot be fixed overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third issue is the aging population. And it isn't just the aging patient population, it's the aging care provider population as well. And I think how healthcare is provided and organized it needs to be completely rethought, which brings me to the last challenge, which really is the digitalization or the digital transformation of healthcare, which, which may hold some solutions to some of these problems. What is the state of uh, digitalization of healthcare in Canada? There is a hope that with the help of technologies, uh, a lot of challenges will be solved, costs decreased, prevention improved, but at the same time, all these things cost, they demand investments, they are difficult to implement, they have to take care of adoption. How would you characterize uh, that aspect of healthcare? I would say at the moment, it's very... Uh early and there's still a lot of discussion and thinking going on around this. In my own institution, we've actually made this a priority over the last two years, even before the pandemic began, because we saw that this was going to be the key challenge with respect to healthcare organization and provision of care going forward. And of course, as you indicated, it presents its own challenges, not least of which is putting in place a robust cybersecurity defense. And also very important, it's not just education of professionals who will work at a new digitalized system, but education of the population who's going to have to learn how to live and function in a digitalized healthcare world. As the president and CEO of the Integrated Health and Social Services University Network for West Central Montreal, how are you addressing the challenges that you mentioned? The fact that you've got an aging workforce, the fact that you might want to employ more healthcare workers that then there are out there uh, on the market? Two things. One is uh, we've always been an organization that's prided ourselves on our excellence and our attractiveness to people who want to work in the healthcare system. So we're a magnet organization has a history of attracting good people and attracting the people we want and the people we need. So I'm not minimizing the, the lack of manpower. It's still an issue, but uh, perhaps it's a little bit less of an issue for us than it would be for other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, as I said, we began thinking about the digital transformation of healthcare at least two or three years ago. And We've been hiring people with the appropriate expertise. We've been training our own people internally to give them the skill set they need to function in the new world going forward. And we've been on a fundraising campaign to raise the funds we need, to, not necessarily from government, but privately, to effect a transformation in a digital way. Mm -hmm. How we're organized and how we provide care. But you've been in this position as a, as the president and CEO for quite a few years. 
How would you say that the whole state in terms of digitalization has changed? You mentioned you've been actively working on this in the last two years, but it's always uh, interesting to have a comparison of the state before, let's say, five years ago and today. Concretely, we've, we're going through a process now of upgrading our IT infrastructure, which is fundamental to any digital transformation. So that's almost completed. We've spent the last few years putting in place a very robust cybersecurity defense which also is a fundamental foundational element to any digital transformation program. And we're now looking at how we can uh, reorganize care so that uh, we expand our ability to provide virtual care out into the community without requiring people to come into our institutions if they can't or won't. And at the same time, we're engaged in a massive program to develop and implement a next generation electronic healthcare record that will really improve access to care, improve cost effectiveness, and take into account the, the lack of adequate manpower. And mm -hmm. for the first time as a health network, enable us to put in place a continuum of care that allows us to collect data from across the entire continuum. Is that meant going? Mm -hmm. Oh, as I mentioned before, digitalization can be expensive, not just because of the IT systems that you put in, but because of all the maintenance that comes with it. You mentioned that you employed additional experts. You need IT experts, data analysts. In the future, there's going to be an increased need for AI specialists to be in the hospitals. And you mentioned that you already basically started um, bringing all these people in. How is then the structure of costs in the, the hospital changing in terms of how you budget uh, where the money is going to be allocated to? As we reimagine how we organize work and provide care, there will be things that we no longer have to do the way we used to do them. And we will be doing things differently with more of a, a digital way of, of organizing and providing care. Of course, there are some what we call sunk costs at the beginning that will have to be put in to purchase new equipment. But there's also a lot of wasted money at the moment being thrown at old and antiquated IT infrastructure. And those costs will go away and we can recoup some of that budget to reinvest in a new digital space. Mm -hmm. And so individuals doing certain jobs will not have to do those jobs anymore. Like people answering telephones, I think that's going to go away. You don't have to pay chatbots. It's an initial capital investment, but over time, that will be a saved labor cost. And, and there'll be very many others as well. When you started with the process of digitalization and implementing new systems, did, how did you ensure that these systems were well accepted among the users and the healthcare professionals so you don't get the resistance when something new is introduced and it's just another thing that clinicians need to use in their uh, work time? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we actually have a very decentralized organizational structure in our uh, institution. It's a very democratically run uh, organization. We believe sincerely in 
voice of the customer. And the customer in this case is just the patient, but it's our healthcare professionals as well. And we involve our professionals and our patients at every level in decision-making so that no one can say that they're being forced to use something that they didn't have it in agreeing to, whether to adopt or not to adopt. That's a very interesting perspective because if we look at healthcare from the entrepreneurial perspective, the usual challenge is that you're designing a, a product for, let's say, a doctor or a nurse and the payer or the decision maker regarding whether that system is going to be bought or not is not on the end users. So that's quite a nice example of how you can make it easier for good innovation to come into the system. We do that if you have a certain amount of control, and that's where the challenge is. Uh, we have to be able to balance what we're able to do with what the government will allow us to do. That's an ongoing discussion, but a priority for us internally, certainly is what you would call the uh, the user experience. One of the challenges that healthcare digitalization has is that healthcare systems or institutions that have been digitalized for a long time are now facing the issue of dealing with legacy systems that are very difficult to either get rid of or renew in a little bit. Uh, so how are you ensuring that long-term sustainability of digital systems that you're uh, deploying now? Yeah, so that's a great question. And since we are at the beginning of this journey, we do have a number of legacy systems. And this is what I was trying to indicate earlier. The legacy systems are actually costing us more than they're worth in terms of keeping around and providing a, a active platforms. And so we are rapidly trying to get rid of these legacy systems. And hopefully we will over the next two years as we introduce our next generation system. And how exactly are you doing that if it's not a secret? The reason I'm asking is that one of the strengths of the legacy systems is that the data lock-in, the vendor lock-in. So when you have a challenge that you're not quite sure how to migrate the data to perhaps a better new system, that's where old systems are still left in place. So just how are you, what's the strategy to contain the already existing data that's been captured within the existing system? The, the legacy systems we have are, are actually quite old, but ha having said that, much of our, our archive of medical information uh, is in a format that we can easily transfer over to a new system. And we're not going to be held hostage by previous vendors in terms of having our data locked into their system. It's the way we organized things many years ago. And I think now we can take advantage of the fact that much of our data was archived in a way that would be, I would say easily transferable, but certainly transferable into the new uh, generation of, of software. So the, the strategic thinking was there already years ago. It was, yeah. And what is the state in this regard in Canada, if you look at it from outside of where you, you work? It's, it, yeah. it's different in every province and it's probably different within every institution within every province. Mm -hmm. It was just not something that was well conceived of 20 years ago. And I think now 
we're all suffering from a lack of creative imagination and investment over the last 20 years. What about uh, interoperability? What is the state of that around Canada? That too is an issue. You would think that interoperability would have been a key principle across the country. Unfortunately, it was never achieved. So in terms of public health data, I think that's easily available and centralizable within provinces and within the federal government. But other than that type of data, individual healthcare, patient healthcare information stuck within provinces and within institutions, that will change going forward, no, no doubt. It's just something that was never really able to be achieved over the last couple of decades. One of the recently opened up things at your organization was a new command center that enables an overview of hospital activities in the network. Can you perhaps talk a little bit about that? How does this command center work? There are 30 member facilities in your network. Are all the facilities included? What's the main purpose of the command center, how does it help? The purpose of the command center was really to provide a real-time access to key pieces of information across our network. And it's still a work in process and progress. But when it's fully operational, I think we'll be able to see what our capacity and, and patient flow is across the entire network. And that will enable us, obviously, to make better decisions in real time with respect to med capacity, discharges, transfers, and staffing. And I think that's where it'll be extremely valuable. Yeah, yeah, especially remembering everything that we said before about the challenges with the workforce. Given that you were strategically thinking about digitalization already before COVID, how did the year where everything had to be remote when more uh, often than not patients had to access doctors remotely, how did it impact your organization in terms of the digital strategy, the solutions that were implemented, the funding? Did the strategy or thinking accelerate also, or just what were the consequences that you see? On the positive side, we had already put in place a digital transformation strategy before the pandemic. So what the pandemic allowed us to do was really accelerate the plans that we had already had on the table. We quite quickly stood up a telehealth program across the network. It wasn't perfect, but it was certainly better than nothing since nobody had access to the hospital for many months unless they had a need for urgent surgery or cancer care. But we were quite successful in standing up telehealth programs for most of our ambulatory clinics, for our cancer center, for mental health program. And, and we track the experience of patients in these new programs because we surveyed everybody continuously to make sure that people were getting from these programs what they wanted. And in fact, the acceptance rate amongst patients was well over 85%. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to starting with telehealth and offering it as part of the regular practice, a lot of data gets generated. And I wonder, is there a specific strategy that you have in terms of how to manage all the new generated data, maybe do any additional research to try to find some new findings or just to basically plan for the future better? 
Yeah, so that is a challenge. There's a lot more data, and there's a lot more data coming in real time from places that we didn't normally collect data from. And part of our digital transformation strategy is a does involve a data science, data analytics element, which is only now starting to be put in place. So that will be built into the entire transformation process. It isn't in place yet, but we are bringing in data science experts. We are expanding our, our data science infrastructure, and we will be building the appropriate data infrastructure, including AI, over the next couple of years in order to accommodate the transformation. But unfortunately, all this needs to be done in parallel. You can't do it necessarily in, in series. It requires a huge investment, not just of money, but in terms of time and energy of individuals. Yeah, yeah. sometimes money uh, can be the, the easiest problem to solve. If you just, in COVID, we realized that digitalization can be a part of the solution and the funding followed that thought. But if you don't have the workforce that can implement the systems and the ideas, then yeah, you can't move as fast as you perhaps would like. Looking at the future as the last question, what are some of your strategic thoughts or goals that you would like to achieve with digitalization in the upcoming year? We're not going to undertake a digital transformation because it's the thing to do. We're doing it to to, to address challenges and fix problems. And uh, I think the most serious one is the manpower challenge. The second challenge, of course, is getting access to real-time data from sources, not just the hospital. 85% of people will never come into a hospital, but yet they require medical attention and will be generating data, for example, from mobile devices, from watches or from whatever. So the challenge really is to begin to put in place a structure and a governance that will allow us to collect this data, verify the data, analyze the data, and react to the data in real time in a way that will deliver better care, higher quality care, and a better experience both for the patients and for the profession. In a way, the data center that you put in place is the beginning of this, isn't it? It is. So kind of... And it will grow. It will become the brain of the institution that will underlie everything else. Okay, Dr. Rosenberg, thank you for your time. That's all the questions that I have for you today. The lead of Orod was also kind enough to share some of the thoughts from the Connected Health Innovation Hub, which is an, an additional thing that's, you know, in your hospital. So maybe we can uh, really finalize with a thought of, of two about that. So how do you see the innovation hub that you have in the institution? First of all, the, the hub is extremely important because not only does it give us visibility, but it, it, it acts as a driver for doing things we might not otherwise have been able to do as quickly as we're able to do now. The hub has also generated a lot of excitement internally. We have a lot of young professional staff who are looking for ways to re-energize their careers. And, and the hub certainly has provided them a means to do that. It's also provided a, a magnet to companies outside of our organization to come in and use us as a living laboratory to 
test their their products or co-develop products with them. And we have many projects now underway, and that really has surprised me. The number of projects we've been able to put in place in such a short period of time, it's been absolutely astounding. So obviously the need was there. That will be another part of our program that will continue to grow. Can you just briefly maybe highlight two or three examples that are put in place and kind of surprised you that you were able to implement them the fast? Mention one because I think it's quite significant. We developed a partnership uh, between Microsoft Canada, Medtronic, and a Quebec engineering firm called the Auger Group, which enabled us to use the HoloLens in two use case settings that were absolutely spectacular. Allowed us to do a remote cardiac surgery, and the other enabled us to provide care remotely to residents in long-term care during the pandemic. Both of those use cases would have been impossible without the technology and really without innovation hub providing a, a focus for this sort of activity. Is there any other technology that you would say inspires you most for the future impact on healthcare? I, I think AI is going to drive everything ultimately. I don't think it's there yet, but I think ultimately AI will drive everything. This was Dr. Lawrence Rosenberg, President and CEO of the Integrated Health and Social Services University Network for West Central Montreal. And now it's time to also hear a little bit more about innovation with Danina Kapitanovic, the head of the Innovation Hub Orot. Danina, you lead Orot, which is a connected health innovation hub that brings together clinicians and end users with entrepreneurs and innovators in order to build and launch technologies that improve people's lives. Can you name a few practical examples of what was designed in the hub and is now used in practice so far? So um, first, let me, you know, preface by saying that we're, we have been in existence since July last year. Having said that, we have, we have been very productive and have taken on a number of projects that have resulted in, in concrete change. Our institution was among the first institutions that was called by the Ministry of Health and Social Services to respond to the crisis. We're one of the busiest uh, emergency uh, departments in the province, and we have also in recent renovations opened an entire pavilion that consisted of a number uh, of rooms that were pandemic ready, that had that were equipped with negative pressure environment. And as a result, we expect that they would there would be a huge pressure on the institution once the you know pan- pandemic was in full swing which is exactly what ended up happening and since we had a pre-existing relationship with a partner who had quite a bit of experience in developing this type of this type of technology for optimization of workflows we co-developed care 360 which is a solution that basically sought to using epidemiological modeling predict one week ahead of of time the number of patients that we will receive in our hospital and then from there how many of those patients will graduate to intensive care and and what would be the the use of of ventilators the second aspect of care 360 was we're still an environment that does not have a unified electronic health record. 
And in a situation where you had a large number of patients, all of whom had to be monitored very closely, without a single overview, that became very risky. Uh, most We were looking to create an environment where we would obviously continue to provide excellent care, but at the same time minimize the contact between the clinicians and the patients. So the uh, second aspect of CARE 360 was, was to create a dashboard that gave an overview of the, that allowed us to look at wards where COVID patients were, but also zoom in on single patients. And then based on some pre-agreed uh, parameters that we were monitoring, the dashboard was also in position to warn us when certain patients were, their parameters were showing signs of deterioration, signaling to the clinicians that their, that they, their, their attention was, was needed. From CARE360, we have now expanded into a concept that we call C4, which is essentially a command center that looks to optimize the functioning of the hospital, intake of patients, and then the optimization optimize the bad flow to obviously optimally use our human and physical resources, avoid lags and wait times. If we go back a little bit uh, uh, to the point of the inception of OROT, you mentioned that it's uh, coming close to a year. So the center was established in July last year. Can you talk a little bit about how that looked like in the middle of the pandemic, everybody working from home? And also the workflows that you mentioned in terms of optimizing contact between physicians and uh, patients, how is that changing now when things are getting back to normal? We already see that in the U.S., employers are getting more and more keen to getting people back to the offices. Even before the pandemic, our leadership was keenly aware that business as usual will simply not fly, that our you know healthcare system is on a collision course with itself. The demographic change is such that business as usual is not sustainable. We have an increasingly aging population that is living longer, but isn't necessarily healthier. The, our care is still, our healthcare is still largely based on an acute care delivery model, all of which has resulted in significant increases in healthcare spending that far outmatch the, the GDP growth. In Quebec and in Canada, we're past now 50% of the GDP mark in terms of healthcare costs. And as you can imagine, as our aging population multiplies and with high incidence of chronic diseases and, and comorbidities, we're facing a situation where our healthcare model will simply not be affordable. <clears throat> and so there was a realization on the part of our leadership that our healthcare model has to change and that it has to be pushed out of the hospital and brought closer to the patient. And that, that was one of the one of the driving forces behind the healthcare reform that took place in Quebec in 2016 that brought us the, the that brought institutions inside networks that have regional coverage in order to in, ensure that there's continuum of care. But I think there's also a realization that with that the technology that exists today, we're in position position to really push out as much of that care as possible closer to the patient and ensure that care is provided wherever the patient is, the concept we call care. So I think healthcare keenly opened itself up and, and sought to be revolutionized by digital healthcare technology. And yet, despite enormous investments to the tune of 20, 25 billion dollars uh, US only last year in direct investment, no technology has as of yet revolutionized the delivery of healthcare. Digital transformation is absolutely necessary. 
that innovation is a keystone of that digital transformation, but that innovation has to be based in a very close collaboration between the users and, and the innovators. And that will, in fact, help bridge this issue of, of having a whole bunch of technologies out there that haven't been transformative. We realized also that we live in a universe where technologies and solutions are seeking problems to resolve rather than the other way around, us clearly making it known what the issues are and then figuring out how best to solve them and how technology uh, you know, can solve them. Artificial intelligence is an excellent example. We hear people speaking of artificial intelligence as a game changer in healthcare, but the focus is on our artificial intelligence and not necessarily on the issues and then figuring out how artificial intelligence can solve those issues. There were also, there are also now a mounting number of studies and evidence that points that technologies such as artificial intel intelligence can actually be a double-edged sword and, and be detrimental and dangerous if they are created far away from the setting. If there's data biases, but there's also contextual biases that make it so that something that could be powerful can actually become dangerous. So with all of this in mind, we've conceptualized a of all our connected health innovation hub that seeks to, that, that first and foremost focuses on, begins the process of innovation with a clearly identified need as perceived by the clinicians and the users. Like that is the, the, the motivator. And then from that perspective, we seek partnership with the industry because we believe while we are obviously supportive and, and proponents of innovation in all its forms, we focus on outside innovation with the idea of really accelerating, accelerating the development and the integration of innovations. Can you perhaps mention anything uh, more specific about how you identify mm -hmm. potential problems that you want to solve or address next? Just mm -hmm. from the organizational perspective, what can mm -hmm. other healthcare networks or health hospitals that are trying to innovate with an innovation hub, how they should go about this? Because there's so many so, things on uh, the market that it's really difficult to really absolutely. kind of... Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And some of this obviously changes contextually. We're a particular kind of network, very re representative in Canadian terms. We're home to a very diverse, probably the most diverse population in Canada, both in terms of age, in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of ethnicity. But and so representative of a certain market, but we do I, I do recognize that in certain settings people might have to tailor make their approach to respond to the needs of their population. In this instance, we thought about this long and hard. And while innovation initiatives to take hold inside an institution obviously have to have a strong support of the leadership, which is certainly the case in our in our network. And while the kind of the strategic vision is formed at that level, the it, it is equally important to understand what the perception is on at the grassroots level. So at the level of the patient and then at the level of the frontline clinician. And so the way our governance is built, there's it's built in phases, right? The innovation trajectory is built in phases. And obviously the first phase is clearly identifying the needs and priorities. And so that is that we've accomplished that by building our governance on both the top-down and bottom-up uh, approach. On the top, we have an executive committee that oversees the work of Avot that is constituted of individuals presided by our president and CEO. 
that kind of sets the strategic vision for the network. But then I have established a number of grassroots mechanisms that seek to understand what the need is as perceived by the users whether they be clinicians or, or patients. So I have done so by establishing a network-wide community of practice that's been somewhat disrupted. It's been in many communities of practice and often it can turn into theoretical exercises where you discuss concepts and notions. I really wanted this community of practice to be about practice. So it is about discussing needs and discussing experiences and how people go about to innovate. Then we have established a, a system of collecting needs, both push and pull. We have a, a website that is connected to the network website and the individual institutions website where people can come and fill out a form and submit their, whether they are an employee or they are an, a potential industry partner, they can, they can submit our idea. In turn, we have also established a mechanism where where we can put out calls for ideas and call for proposals so proactively go and seek feedback and then and then the where projects emerge is a sort of an intersection between these two between the strategic level and these sort of ideas that emerge from the field from their own we have a pre-gating and gating process pre-gating establishes the feasibility and whether something has a potential to form into a project and what sort of support it would get and then the gating process formalizes that and assesses officially approves that establishes that the project is deemed strategically important and well resourced to go on at the gating level we also establish whether something constitutes as a research or as a quality assurance project, or we have this third category, which is co-development. And then based on that, there are paths to be followed. If something is research, then we want to make sure that it's rigor rigorously looked at by our um, ethics board, research ethics board. Same thing applies to something that's deemed a quality assurance, but it's just a different instance looks at it. And then we, in collaboration with, with these two instances, we have also established some standards in terms of what are co-creation, co-development activities, like what standards they should submit to. Once that process is completed and, and we look to establish something that is as optimized and as accelerated as possible, we then form teams around these projects that have every project has to have a clinical champion. A clinical lead. They are, if in case of research studies, also they serve as, as principal investigators. Every project has an executive sponsor currently fulfill that role. So I make sure that I look at all the projects transversally and I make sure that all the resources that are needed both internally and externally are available and, and any blockages removed. And then projects typically have project managers, and then we look to mobilize whatever clinical capacity and non-clinical capacity is needed to make sure that the project goes on. We, we set up a very clear timelines and with the ultimate goal of integrating the, the innovation. So in, from that, in that regard, we have also a very close collaboration with a ministerial body called Innovation Office that looks to facilitate the collaboration between private sector and the ministry and take applicable innovations system-wide. 
And so we then, at the end of the process, loop in with that body to to make sure that, like I said, where the innovations are considered from a system mm-hmm. perspective, from a perspective. You've been in the innovation space for a long time, even before this position, you were heavily involved with hacking health. So from that perspective and knowing how the whole idea search process is happening through hackathons and now actually mm-hmm. building innovations through an innovation hub. Perhaps can you share a little bit of your insight regarding uh, digital health innovation across Canada and where do you see are any hotspots or most innovative hubs in the country, mm-hmm. which is divided into 10 provinces in three additional regions. So it's larger than we might think in our mental map when we just think Canada. Canada is, from the innovation perspective, I see innovation digital health space as a driver, as an economic driver and having, I would say, go as far as to say having a huge role in, in, in our economic relaunch. I think it's, it, it's part of the economy that has uh, continued to be very vibrant, regardless of the difficult conditions that we we have lived through and continue to live through. It, it is also, I, I would say, a silver lining of this pandemic is that it has great accelerated and facilitated digital health innovation. For example, in our province, telehealth lagged behind for, for years and, and huge, I would say, contributing reason was that there were no provincially approved budget codes for caregivers delivering care via telemedicine. This is something that quickly changed at the onset of, of the pandemic, which then just opened tons of doors. And so I don't see us going back. I only see us exploiting this space further and and expanding on that space. Montreal and Quebec, obviously I'm biased, I'm, I'm, I'm from here. This is an incredibly rich ecosystem that will only continue to grow. Ecosystem that's very interested in artificial intelligence and becoming artif- artificial intelligence hub of the world. We have, the province has, the provincial authorities have recently launched an initiative called Innovation Zones. So creating zones akin to industrial zones that that will focus on innovation and AI is a zone that that we have conceptualized a number of institutions, both from the private sector, the academic sector, the healthcare sector, have joined forces and put forth an application which is currently being studied by the Ministry of Economy Innovation calling for the creation of an innovation zone that would exclusively focus on AI and health. So. I, we're also currently revising our strategy. The Ministry of Economy and Innovation is revising its strategy for innovation and research for the next five years. And again, I, I, I see great things ahead. We have also, as a province, established a position of innovator-in-chief. And I'm happy to say that position has been given to Luc Sirois, who is also the founder of, of Hacking. In terms of across the province, obviously through my Hacking Health Network, I was privy to and very privileged to, to meet innovators and people in digital health space across Canada. 
Toronto is obviously a place that was on the map and continues to be on the map with tremendous resources dedicated to the digital health innovation space. There are great things happening in Alberta, taking great strides in creating structures, both human resource-wise and financially, in order to foster and spearhead innovation in digital health space inside the province. Edmonton has a number of uh, institutions that work exclusively to foster entrepreneurship in this space. British Columbia as well. In Newfoundland, although a small, tiny Atlantic province, is also positioned itself very strongly in the space and looking to spearhead the creation of excellent centers in cybersecurity. I, I, th I think there's a realization that without a robust cybersecurity system, all of this is very vulnerable and fragile. As a country, I would say a country that is vast geographically, but small population-wise, I would say we're very strongly positioned to be, you know, the leaders in the digital health innovation space. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you're interested in exploring healthcare from other perspectives as well, from nurses, doctors, more focused on investments, more focused on the US, do visit thehealthpodcastnetwork.com to find other topics as well. Stay tuned!